You're listening to an encore presentation of Manson Mitchell. Seriously, there is not an unlimited amount of love in the world. It's rare. TGIF, it's Manson Mitchell with Gary Manson, Suzanne Mitchell. A double shot of good conversation with great guests to jumpstart your weekend. Manson Mitchell, you're on the air. Thank you, Eric Kramer. Hi, everybody. Great start to your weekend, we hope. We hope you're catching you on the rise. And if we can contribute, glad to be here for that. I'm Gary Mance. I'm Suzanne Mitchell. We are Mance and Mitchell in your ears for the hour if our luck holds up. And if we stay on the good side, especially technically, of bad boy Benny Mathers at the board. He's here again, as always. Benny, how are you today? On the rise, I won't. Ki- I will not quit my day job. <laughs> I don't think and we're great. They won't let you anyway. That's we, for sure. Thank you. Here. Job security, right there. You have job security. <laughs> well, we're in a situation once again where we've got a star in the firmament of personal growth. Yes. There, uh, the human potential movement is what we used to call it back in the day, <laughs> and we liked it that way. And here we are, we talk about metaphysics, we talk about ancient wisdom for a modern audience and people who find something of value in it. So who better to have with us again? How many times is this now? Number seven. Well, that's apropos. It's a lucky seven. Lucky seven, as we talk about the seven secrets to healthy, happy relationships and co-author Don Miguel Ruiz Jr. joins us today. This is, now he co-wrote this book, with a lady of whom I am unaware, Heather Ash Amara. So we need to find out more about her. And it's about the relationships. As I said on Facebook, when I was touting Miguel's appearance with us today, I said, this is what we call an evergreen topic. Okay. (laughs) Well, you you see where I'm going with this. Yes. There's no time when this would be irrelevant. Okay. I'm feeling you too, Suzanne. I have no clue. <laughs> I know sometimes he just leaves me kind of hanging there. A with, little bit. Uh, yeah, yeah. Not sure what to say, Benny. But she looks at me like when you walk in, see, I, she's a math person. I'm not. That's what I experience when I go into a classroom. I can remember this many times. And uh, the previous class had some unbelievable equation on the board that took up two, if not three, chalkboards. And I'm standing there going, what am I looking at? Hieroglyphics? <laughs> And of course, Suzanne came in and there was like, yep, yep, that's uh, X, X equals two over Y. Completely. Yeah, right. I was a math major for a very long time. Ooh. Very good. Very good. Love math. It's logical and it makes sense and it works. Well, if we could do the same for relationships in this world, oh, then we'd have something. Right. Then, yeah, then I could be a master. I'm going to tell you a little bit about our guest today. Don Miguel Ruiz Jr. is a Toltec master of transformation and the author of numerous books. And I think by now we might have them all on our bookshelf. By combining the wisdom of his family's traditions with the knowledge gained from his own personal journey, he now helps others realize their own path to personal freedom. Uh, We will be sure to give out his website before the end of this hour. And we want to welcome for the seventh time, the seven secrets on the seventh visit. I mean, it just, it fits. It absolutely fits. Welcome, Don Miguel Ruiz Jr. So happy to have you with us today. Well, thank you so much for having me on the show for the seventh time. It's, it's an honor and wow, time flies by so fast. You're, you're our, one of our regular A-listers. 
Oh, Gary you. and I read your book, The Seven Secrets, and we, we read it out loud and we talked about it. Mm-hmm. But I have to say, it, this whole book could have been written in about one paragraph. Mm-hmm. And I want to, we're going to pick it apart a little bit at a time. But I wanted to start with something that is right in the introduction. And this is, I think if you didn't write anything else but the introduction, this sums it up. And this is going to be our launching point for what we're going to talk about today. And this is from page 13 of the introduction. You say, today we are entering a whole new world of relationships, particularly romantic relationships. While we can appreciate the beauty of a vast frontier with no rules, we must also face the challenge of very little guidance or support about how we might behave. For this reason, we usually end up unconsciously dragging the old rules and expectations of our parents, culture, and religion into our relationships, whether or not we consciously agree with them. We choose partners in a flush of hormones and possibility only to find that when the spark of new love dissipates, we have no idea how to communicate or navigate the challenges that arise. And because we are not taught how to be creative, Mm -hmm. curious artists of relationships, we get bogged down in our expectations and play out the same patterns and conflicts even as the relationships themselves change. I have to tell you, Miguel, I read that paragraph two or three times. I said to Gary, that's all he needed to say. I mean, that really sums up everything else that is to follow. Now you do say, you know, you, you work through all of that, you flesh that out, but it just seems to me that that is really it. And that created many hours of conversation between me and Gary, everything that you bring, not just to your romantic relationships, but to all relationships is everything you've experienced before then. Have I got that right? Yeah. <laughs> well, it's, it's, it's true. You know, that's, it's, a, it's a moment of clarity in my life where I realized, you know, when I look back on my old relationships, um, most of the fights she and I would have, or they would, they and I would have, is who's going to domesticate who? And a lot of the arguments was basically the arguments my parents would have. Expectation: Who's going to make the other one fit the image of what love should be? Until it all came crashing down, and I realized that, well, since we were talking math at the very beginning, I am the constant in every relationship that I am in. And before I used to think that the variable was the person that I was in relationship with, but the variable really was also me. I am both the constant and the variable. In every relationship, every person in my life brings out a whole different element of me. But with every day that passes, I'm changing. I'm not the same person I was when I was 28, 30, 45. And that's, and that just covers one relationship with my wife. We've been together for 17 years. And in those 17 years, I've changed. So that's the funny thing about it is that I am both the constant and the variable used in the mathematical uh, conversation we had at the introduction. It's coming to realize that I have no idea what I'm doing. I'm doing the best with what we've got. It's true in relationships just as much as it is true as a parent. You know, we're playing the person we are raising 
is changing in front of us. You know, as soon as we get used to being the parent of a one-year-old, they turn two, making everything we knew about parenting irrelevant because the child we are raising is no longer the same. Then they turn four, they turn six, they turn 10, 15. With every birthday, we're reinventing that relationship. And the thing about raising a child is that we see the physical changes in front of us. You know, we see the height, that we see the growth, that we see the maturity. But just like Einstein describes the theory of relativity, that when we go in the same, spe same speeds, we kind of don't see the difference in the acceleration or the changes. My wife and I have been together for 17 years and we've grown together in that same rate that sometimes we don't see those changes. And if we take a step back, not only do we look at who this person we're in relationship with, and it's no longer the same person we were all those years ago, in my case, 17 years, but I'm not even the same person. So just like in parenting, that every, every year makes parenting change, uh, different, my relationship with my wife is different because we're both changing. So my, my stepmom asked my wife before she passed away, my wife, my, my mama Gaia, how did you and your husband, Miguel, survive the culture clash between the both of you? And my wife answered it as beautiful as she could because we love each other. Whenever couples come and ask me about advice, I always ask them the same question. Do you guys want to stay together? If they both say yes, the rest is easy because that mutual yes is the motivator that gets us through all the things. If they both say no, that's also easy because they're sharing each other their truth. It gets complicated when one says yes and the other one says no. At that moment, you're trying to convince the other person to change that yes into a no or a no to a yes. But when you both have that mutual yes, it is the thing that allows us to get through all the hurdles. So in, a, in looking back on my relationships, in particular that the, the phrase in that book, the passage in that book, it comes to the point where you realize that when you hold on to these beliefs you used to have, especially when you were younger, when you're holding on to beliefs of your parents or your family or your whatever it is that it came from, and you try to force them to fit the relationship you're in, most of the time it's not gonna fit and it'll be a struggle, it'll be a fight to make it fit. But you take a step back and realize that this relationship exists for as long as we both say yes. We can create a whole new culture together. And in that whole new culture, we can let go of that which doesn't fit us anymore. Something that no longer reflects the truth of our relationship and we keep that which enhances it. And in the 17 years I've been with my wife, that is exactly what I've learned. Every year we change the, the culture, the relationship, the conversation, because not only are our kids changing as well as our dogs are getting older too, but she and I are also changing. We're, we're both 45 years old and we're getting to know ourselves all over again. And that's the thrilling part, you know, it's the thing that keeps us, well, engaged. Who are you today? And more importantly, who am I today? 
that constant willingness to look at each other the way for who we are is exactly what allows us to let go of that which no longer serves us, keep what does, and create a new agreement that allows us to really form and engage each other at this very moment. But that all requires this willingness to accept ourselves at this very moment, the willingness to know who I am. And Miguel, that allows us to be present. When, when Gary and I were talking today about you know what was in the book, one of the things that I said to him is that no matter how many relationships we have been in, and they you don't even have to count only romantic relationships, but all relationships, you will never at any time come to those relationships fresh and clean and unaffected by your past mm -hmm. because your past is always there with you. Mm -hmm. the, I, I have said this before. One of my favorite movies is Overboard with Goldie Hawn yes, I like that. because she has amnesia and she has no idea who she is. And so she is told who she is and she becomes that person. Mm -hmm. So when we when we enter a relationship, we can't help but bring all of our experiences mm -hmm. and everything that we've been told by our, our parents and our friends to that relationship. That is a lot to overcome, don't okay. you think? A lot. It is, but the main thing is, are we bringing that into our relationship as something we've learned, or are we bringing it as a fresh wound that we keep cutting open time and time again? When Heather Ash came up to me and asked me to participate in this project with her, I, what I, in my own life, I had just finished the journey of healing the relationship with my very first love, the, the relationship that impacted all the rest of it, you know, just in, in, in reference to what you were saying, because what you said is true and I've experienced it in my life. I had that one relationship that we had a heartbreak, heartbreak and that heartbreak infected every relationship since it didn't allow that relationship that I was in, that new one, to really be itself because these old wounds created projections, assumptions, and the cycle would continue. It, did so many, many times until, you know, we, we me, me and my first love, every time we'd be, try to be friends, it, it would be like two porcupines whose quills <laughs> just fitted perfectly every time we come in to be friends. At first we would hook up and get together again, but the wounds just kept hitting and hitting just right until we couldn't really be around each other. It was just too much, but we never stopped. We never stopped trying to be friends until we had to take a huge break. And luckily between that, I, I had my own ha-ha moment. I had my own moment where I hit my own rock bottom and I had to start working on myself to give myself that permission to heal. If anything I've learned in the last few years is that we heal with our own permission. And even though I didn't know how to put in words back then, I reached that point where I decided to no longer continue that cycle of 
the best way to heal from a relationship is to get into a new one. And I really believed that when I was younger, that mm. the best way to let go of a heartbreak is just to get into a new one. And it just kept accumulating like a freight train because every, every relationship that I was getting into began to infect the present one, just the way you described it in a certain way. I'm just using my words. Until that moment, or at least that relationship where I could not project blame, it was all me. And the whole freight train came crashing down. And the biggest heartbreak for me was I wasn't who I pretended to be. So I finally began to apply everything I learned through my father, through my grandmother in healing. You know, my father, his aha moment was having an accident. My brother's aha moment was when he went blind. My aha moment when, was when I lost the woman I loved very, very much. And I wanted to marry. And I lost her because I was pretending to be something I wasn't. I, I did not live up to that. I just, all those wounds just came crashing down and I took the time to heal. A whole year of not dating anyone and just applied it. And then luckily for me, around the end of that year, when I started to really feel confidence in myself and learning to say no to people, to say no to a woman, to say no to with, with complete respect, I met my wife. And just in time, of course. And we've been together for 17 years. But sometimes, thanks to social media, um, my first love and I came back in contact and we tried again, but this time I didn't have my quills up. You can say, I, as I retracted them, I, I, I healed whatever made me bring them up. And I learned the difference between pity, sorry, no, sorry. I learned the difference between guilt and remorse. Guilt is punishing yourself over and over again for something you want to do. And every time you think about it, you judge yourself. Por mi culpa, por mi culpa, por mi culpa. But here's the thing. If life were to give you the chance to do it all again, you would still do it again because that's what you wanted to do. And that's what guilt is. Remorse, on the other hand, comes when you understand what compassion is. When you see the ripple effects of your own actions, you see how my own actions impacted someone else's life, someone else's emotions, someone else's heart in this case. I see them as a human being, which simply means it's the moment I actually start listening to their side of the story as opposed to whatever projection I had of them. And that's where remorse comes in. If life were the chance to give, if life were to give you the chance to do it again, you wouldn't. Not because you got caught or whatever, it's because you now know the ripple effects of those actions and you say no because to you, or to me in this case, it's no longer worth it to hurt someone else. I don't want that consequence. And you can tell that's the difference between guilt and remorse. When I went to talk to my first love and I owned my actions and I I apologize, not the apology of an ex-boyfriend who's trying to hook up again, but the apology of someone who sees her for the very first time, we got a chance to heal. 
and opened up and we talked about it. And she opened up to her side and communication once again opened without any quills trying to hurt each other. We listened. And then I heard the one thing I wanted to hear since I was 18 years old. She said, I used to love you very much. It was the first time we both felt comfortable enough to say how much we loved each other. And we both admitted we would have broken up because, you know, we're in our late 30s now and we understand how that goes. But it is the thing that allows us to heal that. And here, the person who benefited besides she and I, in my case, was my wife, because that old wound is no longer infecting our present. Sometimes when we do the work of healing, everything we've learned, all those impacts of all those relationships come in as knowledge that you can apply, which is what we know as wisdom. I learn from my past and I can apply it versus bringing all my wounds to this present situation and letting my insecurities, my fears, my pain be projected onto someone who had nothing to do with it. And when that happens, the arguments, the fights that come in that relationship have nothing to do with this present one. It's all the past. We're fighting past fights. We're fighting past experiences. You know, that, that whole expression will cut them off at the past, anticipating, thinking that it's going to happen. Might as well make my stand here and thinking that's where the behavior is going to happen. But when you are able to heal all those wounds, you realize that every relationship is brand new. You've never been in a relationship with this person before. There are totally different individuals. Do patterns emerge? Yes. What patterns? My own. Because I'm the constant. Yeah. <laughs> Very good. Um, Gary and I both did individual work and I had a major breakthrough on the day of my second uh, date with Gary. And I've told the story before. And at, in the end, Gary turned out to be the gift yeah. of my own healing. Mm -hmm. And, um, and, you know, the idea I, I think about healing is the ability to enjoy your own company so that you are not dependent upon somebody else to heal you. Mm -hmm. And thank you for saying that, Suzanne. By the way, you may find this interesting, Miguel, but uh, on our second date, this breakthrough date, Suzanne told me uh, after we watched it, uh, we had Chinese food for dinner, went to an American movie and then had hot chocolate at an IHOP afterwards. So, I mean, I, I spared no expense. I just <laughs> pulled out all the stops. And we got talking about our lives, our backgrounds. And Suzanne told me something that really was kind of prescient because I've had any number of people afterwards say to me, you know, you and Suzanne should be together. You're soulmates. You're so much alike. There, well, I see one, I see the other. It's like I'm looking, Suzanne is the female side of you and you're the male side of her and you really belong together. It was really ironic then when Suzanne told me that her mother had said to her many years earlier that had she been born a boy, they were going to name her Gary. 
Wow. <laughs> wow. Yes, that's true. That's Before awesome. you knew the sex of your baby, parents used to pick out a boy's name and a girl's name. Yep. yep. And and so we, you know, I laughed about that because I can remember what my sister's uh, boy name was going to be. And I can remember what my brother's girl name was going to be, but I didn't know what mine was going to be. So I asked my mom and she said, oh, we were going to name you Gary. Ah! Wow. <laughs> <laughs> and before we go to a break, let me bring this in out of left field. Miguel, did you spend any time watching this landmark TV series from Canada called Schitt's Creek? You watch that at all? Yeah. When I watched that, and Suzanne and I binge watched it after it won every award known to man this side of the Nobel Prize at the conclusion of six seasons, we thought, okay, it's available for free to binge watch, and we're here during the pandemic sitting around, let's watch it. We fell in love with it, and now it's in syndication, and we rarely miss it. They show back-to-back -back episodes. But anyway, when it comes to that particular program, what I kept saying as we binge watched was these people are going through something very much like the, the self-liberation once you recognize the Buddhist concept of suffering. Mm -hmm. Everything, virtually every scene through six seasons has to do with awkwardness. Yeah. The pain of awkwardness and trying to make life and love work with all of these challenges in a place where you'd rather not be anyway, but mm -hmm. there they were doing the work. And that series showed me the value in awkwardness if you stick with it. Yeah. No, no my, my, my wife loves that show, and, and she, she plays it a lot. And she was describing that to me. It's like, here they are. They're used to this one world, and they're forced onto this other world, but they're still holding on to what was. And it wasn't until they, they let go of that what, what, what was and that allows them to really flourish in this situation they're in. Of course, it's all comical and all, but yeah. And I was thinking of that as we were reading your book. It's just, you know, there's a, a virtue to awkwardness, though it's the kind of lesson we don't welcome. I don't know, maybe we should. There's so much more to talk about. We were at break time here. Our one and only break is upon us. And we will do the marketing pieces, we like to call it, on the other side so that you can find out how to get up close and personal with Don Miguel Ruiz Jr. His wonderful book is called The Seven Secrets to Healthy, Happy Relationships, written by Don Miguel Ruiz Jr. and Heather Ash Amara. Wonderful book. We'll get into more of it on the other side of a short break. Stick with us. We are Manson Mitchell, and you are tuned in to Seattle's home of Alternative Talk, AM 1150. Hi, everybody. This is Anson Williams from Happy Days, and I'm so excited to tell you about American Road. It is the best car travel magazine in the world. They have the most fantastic adventures detailed in each magazine with all your itinerary. We could just jump in the car with your family and have the most fabulous adventures you've ever had in your life. Please get a copy of American Road and start your own adventure. Staying connected with Gary Mance and Suzanne Mitchell is easy. Just go to manceandmitchell.com for the latest info on topics and guests. Friend Gary Mance and Suzanne Mitchell on their Facebook pages and like the Mance and Mitchell show page at facebook.com slash manceandmitchell. If you're on Twitter, share a follow with Gary and Suzanne at Mance Mitchell. Join Gary and Suzanne Friday and Saturday mornings at 10 a.m. for an unusual show that covers everything from personal growth to the paranormal. 
Here's an amazing act. Here's a tremendous act. Here's a startling act. The amazing, the thrilling, the greatest, spectacular, incredible, exciting, wonderful, world-famed, most unusual novelty act. The home of the A-Team of Alternative Talk is ManceAndMitchell.com. Heard right here on Alternative Talk 1150 AM or streaming live from your computer anywhere. Terry Loving wants to help you with your online marketing challenges right now. She has several courses she is giving away to help you get your business working for you online. Yes, giving away. WordPress websites are her specialty, yet her technical skills go way beyond that. Check out her blog at terryloving.com or email her directly at terry at terryloving.com. That's terry at terryloving.com. On Friday, Manson Mitchell featured Don Miguel Ruiz Jr. on happy, healthy relationships in this encore presentation from earlier this year. On Saturday, Cass Huff returns to talk about her life as a sought after, naturally gifted psychic medium who offers herself as a living bridge to the beyond, bringing messages from spirit. Bringing you mastery and mystery since 2007. We are Manson Mitchell, Friday and Saturday mornings at 10, right here on Alternative Talk AM 1150. Alternative Talk 1150, the talk of the sound. You're listening to an encore presentation of Manson Mitchell. Welcome back to Manson Mitchell and our very special guest this hour, Don Miguel Ruiz Jr., the author of several books. And as I said earlier, they're filling our library up, which we are happy to have. Uh, Miguel, if people would like to connect with you, what what is your website? Uh, tell us about your books and anything else that you would like to share with our listeners. Sure. Uh, our home base is miguelruiz.com. That's my father's website. So my brother, myself, and my dad, all three of us, uh, that's our home base as well. I do have a website called miguelruizjr.com, miguelruizjr.com. Uh, we're active on Instagram and Facebook, and I have a Twitter account. But uh, I think our home base will always be our website and our, our books. You can find them on Amazon and Barnes and & Noble and your local independent bookstore and IndieBound.org. All right. Local independent bookstore. You know what? I'm going to look forward to that. And if I can't find one, I will look for the Wells Fargo wagon to bring me my books <laughs> <laughs> because apparently that's how it's done. Like for the views of the Wells Fargo wagon, you know, they're so excited about what's it going to bring to me. This is technology. People get on this show and they say, well, of course there's always Amazon. And I want to say, yes, Jeff Bezos needs it. This is a telethon for Jeff Bezos. Please <laughs> give all you can because he needs the money. <laughs> That's funny. <laughs> well, unless you have something, Gary, I'm going to quote from the book again. Well, I'll say just this one quick thing. We picked that bumper music, as we call it, coming back from the break. Hello, goodbye from the Beatles, because it seems that's their answer to the old tune from what, the 40s, I suppose? Tomato, you say tomato, I say tomato, let's call the whole thing off. This is the awkwardness of relationships and learning to speak each other's language. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that's a lot of what we get from your book. And that takes a willingness to engage. If you don't have that, you're in trouble. Yes. No, it, it, it is the key. You know, communication is uh, the thing that which we, the fabric by which cr we create this new culture. And what I've referred to as a new culture is that in a relationship, 
two people come to merge their background, their experience to create something new. And it is in that new space that, you know, we raise kids, we create a new environment, we interact with people, we create a new project. It is that key that allows us to understand each other, but also is that bridge that allows us to understand our beloved, who they are, what they experience, you know, it's like my wife comes home and she lets me know what, how her day went. And that half hour after our kids go off to school and the school bus takes them away and I have that half hour before she goes off to work, we talk, we, we converse. We, I listen to what she has to say. I listen, she listens to what I have to say. And we basically are threading that needle that allows us to continue to create that fabric that is us. And to me, the four agreements is instrument an instrument that allows us to clean the channels of communication. And when we heal, it allows us to be intimate. You know, for example, it's like I always envision intimacy like a flower. If you have a lot of wounds, a lot of issues, a lot of this pent up conditional love in you, that flower is going to be closed. And intimacy is very, very rare. But as you heal and let go, that flower of intimacy opens up and it is, it is that thing that allows us to enjoy a relationship when we're no longer afraid to be ourselves. We're no longer afraid of whether this person we're in relationship with leads, stays or goes. We're just enjoying being in this relationship because a relationship exists only for as long as we both say yes. If you fear the no, then it's all going to be closed off. And if you fear pain coming back, it's going to be closed off even more. So what happens when we close off is that we stop listening. We stop sharing. But if we heal that within us, then that intimacy blossoms. And love blossoms where there is respect, where there is trust. And the trust is not necessarily in another person, but a trust within ourselves. I trust myself to take care of myself. And that, that's what opens the channels of communication and in, uh, lets us enjoy that which we create together. There's a, I hope we can get to two things before the end of the hour. And, and I'm, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna present one of them right now. One of the things that our audience is familiar with is when we talk about the nature of reality and the nature of consciousness. And one of the things that you have in the book that I found it especially intriguing was where you say one of the primary things the Toltec studies studied was the mind's role in perception. Mm -hmm. They astutely recognized that the mind was constantly taking in information from all the senses and making up stories about what it perceived. They termed this habit of the mind dreaming because they realized that rather than perceiving actual reality, the mind was always interpreting its perceptions, adding judgments, making assumptions, ascribing meaning to actions and situations. This meant that when a person's mind was at work, they were often living in their story about reality rather than experiencing reality as it is. Mm -hmm. 
And when I read that, that was especially meaningful because we are making up our reality. Mm -hmm. And we have been told this by so many philosophers, deep thinkers and experts, and yet we still want to argue with it and say, well, I'm not making up my reality. That's the way it is. Mm -hmm. But that isn't the way it is. It's the way that we are perceiving it and making it up like in a dream. Mm -hmm. So I wanted you to say a little bit about that because we, we don't have perceptions, Miguel. We have misperceptions. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. In our tradition, the main function of the mind is to dream. To dream to us means to, that we perceive and we project. We perceive 360 degrees around us. We perceive with our eyes, with our ears, with every single nerve ending that surrounds our body. And at the same time, we're projecting. Right now, you're hearing me fill my diaphragm with air, letting it go through the trachea to the vocal cords and my throat to the muscles in my mouth to make sounds in English so that we can understand each other. We create this symbology that allows us to understand. And even when I'm thinking, whether in Spanish or in English, I'm putting it into a symbol so that I can understand. It's still my projection, that which I think. To perceive, you can say, is silence, where my mind is not getting in the way of that which I perceive. But as soon as I perceive it, I categorize it. The expression I used to say when I was a teenager is I would pigeonhole it, I would put it into its right place, and I would interpret it. Don't make assumptions, is one of my father's agreements. My favorite instrument to describe what an assumption is, is the Gestalt principle of closure. Now I'm gonna to have to ask you to use your imagination a little bit to describe this. But the Gestalt principle of closure describes or puts it this way. If you draw a circle and in the drawing of it, you don't close it, the mind has a capacity to project that missing part of the circle. If you decide to draw a triangle, but only draw two sides of the triangle and not draw that third line, the mind has the capacity to project that missing line. It's something that abstract artists use all the time. Uh, graphic designers also use this all the time in order to make the, the designs more abstract and more meaningful. You know, it, it, it tries to bring the viewer into play with us to create with us and literature is expressed as reading between the lines you know the best genre of literature that uses the gestalt principle is mysteries you know who done it miss scarlet with a wrench in the ballroom you know we try to figure out who done it try to figure it out with sherlock, sherlock holmes and see uh, if we can get it or agatha christie's characters we experience something in life but when we don't have the whole of the information, we begin to project it with what we know. The, the analogy I, know, I normally use is, imagine this. This is a fictional story based on truths, things that happen, but it's a, still a fictional story. Imagine I'm 23 years old and my ex-girlfriend left me for another guy. 
and I have the wounds for it. Then, but being young, I get into a new relationship and this relationship goes a little deeper and we move in together. And as any relationship does, we begin to develop little habits, little something here and there. For example, at seven o'clock when she gets off work, she gives me a call letting me know she's coming back to work. Do you need anything type of thing? Well, as patterns emerge, that, that seven o'clock call would come on the dot. Then comes a day when it doesn't. And the mind, you can say, if we use the analogy of the triangle, one side of the triangle is I know her and us and our habit of calling each other at seven o'clock. The other line I have that's drawn is she hasn't called. The missing line, that third line to create the triangle, to create the whole, is missing. And this, why hasn't she called? And the mind begins to project stories that it makes me think that I know the answer, which is she's still at work and she can't call. She's driving and she doesn't want to use the phone. She's at the gym. She's with her girlfriends. She's with another man. <gasps> she's with another man. I knew it. I knew it. That explains this. That explains that. And little by little, that old wound gets touched and triggered. And you begin to tell stories that that wound is satisfied with. And anger and resentment and jealousy starts boiling up. That explains this. That explains that. And as you're going through this diatribe of, of projections, the door opens up and she walks in. And in her hands, she has my favorite food, she, which is Thai food. And she goes, surprise! But I don't see her hands. I see her eyes. And like a Mexican soap opera, I turn around and I go, you. An argument ensues. A fight breaks out. We break up. She moves out. And there I am, years later, talking to a therapist. Every woman I've ever been with leaves me for another man. And I begin to tell a story. And eventually the therapist stops me at that point where she says, excuse me, what did she have in her hand? Oh, she had Thai. Uh-oh. There was a sixth story, a sixth potential story why she didn't call. If I was healthy enough, I might have gone, she's one other man, and gone to the sixth one. She's going to surprise me with my favorite food. I could have told four more to make a ten. If she'd walked in through the door and she had Thai food in her hand the way she did, nine potential stories, assumptions, would fade away as one potential story became the truth. If none of the 10 stories that I created or assumptions reflected that she was going to surprise me with my favorite Thai food, then all 10 of them will dissipate as the truth was revealed which is, she didn't call me because she wanted to surprise me with my favorite meal, Thai food. That, to me, is what an assumption is. An assumption is a story we create and project when we don't have the full story. We are natural storytellers. We perceive an event. For example, one event can happen in the world and 10,000 stories, all thinking it's the truth, will be told about it. 
And we know this because something happens in the world, choose your new source and everyone will have their own spin, their own interpretation. I unfortunately remember seeing this because when I was uh, living in Santa Monica, California, I witnessed an elderly gentleman get a little confused and hit the accelerator instead of the brake and he plowed through the farmer's market there and I witnessed that tragedy. It's the first time I ever seen so many people laying dead in the, in the street there. And as I'm seeing this, what happened, I'm watching the events unfold upon me and I was in shock, but I can hear everyone around me on their phone describing what they're seeing and everyone's story was different right off the bat. The difference was they're seeing it from their point of view, but some of them were saying, oh, that poor old man to that man had evil in his eyes. I, can, I saw him as he drove through. He, he did this maliciously. And they began to tell stories of how they think they perceived it, interpreting in their own unique way. So we can have one event and the 10,000 stories or more reflecting that event and it will all be truth to the eye of the beholder. Some of them will stick to just the facts, man, to projecting all their assumptions, all, projecting the intent of the individual, the, what they wanted to do, what they were thinking, what they had for breakfast, and things like that. And the ability to be skeptical but learn to listen, the fifth agreement, is holding back that yes and that no and being able to listen and see it from their point of view. We can create any story we want from the most harmonious dream to the perfect nightmare. But ultimately, it is our relationship with this moment in time that allows us to understand not only ourselves, but the environment that surrounds us, but understand what the truth is. And that, like Neil deGrasse Tyson would say, the truth exists whether you believe in it or not. It doesn't need humans for it to exist. But a belief, like our story, only exists for as long as we believe it. As soon as you change that yes into a no, it ceases to exist. The mind allows us to create stories that we can project. But if we learn to be silent, which is to simply to perceive, then life will show us what life really is. Just like if we stand back and listen to what our beloved is saying, we can hear it from their point of view. Some of it may be assumptions or projections, but ultimately you're hearing the way this individual perceives the world and how it, she, he or she relates. So for us in the Tota tradition is being aware of this projection, being aware of this tendency to create our stories and ask ourselves, what kind of storyteller are we? Are we a storyteller that only projects distorted images or assumptions? Or am I a storyteller that pays attention to that which I am witnessing and putting into words so that I can understand in a language that I can understand and doing my very best to either 
just the facts, ma'am. Just the, the old expression from the mystery movie, um, uh, shows. Or my interpretation. Who, what, when, where, and why. And we can stretch out the why because it will always be a projection. I had no idea, Miguel, that you were an eyewitness to a tragedy that I still remember as national news, national news story from years ago. And you were there. You actually were, in a way, you were an observer, a witness, but that made you also a participant because you're evaluating what you're seeing and hearing. Mm -hmm. oh, that fascinates me. Yeah, it was the farmer's market in Santa Monica on Arizona and third uh, and third uh, and fourth. And we were over at the PF Chang's. It was my father and I, and we we're about to have lunch when all of a sudden we heard a commotion. And I just went outside, looked over, and I saw what was happening. You know, I re I still remember the images of the people trying to get the man. You know, and there was a big guy protecting him you know there was there was the people who rushed and then there's the people who was protecting because they they, they really it was it was such a tragic thing I, I remember the man on top of the car I remember the man below I saw well a lot of tarps over over bodies and I still remember people on the phones talking to the beloveds you know I, I you know the <laughs> It was the first time I've ever seen a senseless accident. And I remember Univision coming over and inter interviewing me because I was there. And they asked me, what do you think happened? And I'm like, I, I don't know. It's just I saw the, the situation, but I don't know what was going on in the person's mind. I don't know why he did it. I just know that it happened and they didn't like what I had to say. So they just kept looking around for someone who was going to tell a different kind of story. But yeah, I remember that day. It was man, a long time ago, right? 2003. Yeah. Almost 20 years 2004, ago. 2003, 2004. One of the uh, the last things I want to get to, actually, I think, in some ways, sums up what it was that you were talking about in in your book, uh, the seven secrets to healthy, happy relationships. In in the book, you say awareness is the practice of simultaneously observing what is happening in the exterior world while also witnessing our inner reaction to it. And as far as creating our reality, having an awareness of our projections, I thought that was a nice summation of that. Mm -hmm. What is happening in the exterior world what is my reaction to it? To be able to look at both of those aspects, I think really helps so that you don't, when you look at something, you're not saying, well, that's the truth. That's the way it is. Because as you said, there's 10,000 truths. 
but to say, here's the fact of what happened and here's what I think about it. And to separate those two things, I think is very useful, especially in relationships. You know, if, if um, Gary is late from coming home somewhere, what is my story about that? You know? and to, to, me, to be honest, it's, it's, it's the moment that we have a chance to heal. You know, if, if we don't know the assumption, uh, the, the whole story, and we go to assumption that fulfills an insecurity or a judgment or a, a wound, it is the perfect moment to have awareness and we can make a choice. You know, a, mo a, a moment of clarity without any action is just a thought that passes in the wind, but a moment of clarity followed by action becomes a pivotal moment in our life. And in this occasion, when we tell our st a story that resonates with our pain, with our jealousy, with all that negative feeling that makes us feel bad, it is an opportune moment to begin to process it, to let it go, to forgive if we need to forgive or simply give ourselves the permission to heal and accept it happened a, a teacher once taught me this lesson forgiveness is the moment you no longer wish the past was any different it is the moment you accept it and you let it go i love that I to love accept that. it basically i can't go back there and change a yes to a no right. it happened in life but right. to let it go i'm going to use another my, my brother's uh, metaphors of a 30, 30 seconds. A scorpion has <laughs> itself over and over again. It is the moment when I let it go, is the moment I no longer use the past to hurt me. Ah, you no longer use the past wonderful, to hurt me. Wonderful. That is a breakthrough moment. Thank you. This was magical number lucky seven. Thank you for being with us today. And once again, the book is The Seven Secrets to Healthy, Happy Relationships. Don Miguel Ruiz Jr., always a pleasure to talk to you. Please give our best to your lovely wife. We'd like to do this again. Always something new to talk about when you're in town. Thank you so much, guys. It was always a wonderful pleasure to be with you guys. Have fun. Likewise. Have a great weekend. Thanks so much, ladies and gentlemen. Have yourselves a great weekend.